Testament prophet, before the 400 years of silence, before John the Baptist and the New Testament begins. And we have spent, you can believe it, 30 weeks in Zechariah, and I know some of you are thinking, only 30 weeks, it felt like years, but, but it's been 30 weeks in Zechariah, um, not including a three-week um, detour on dealing with eschatology and Israel and the church and all of that, 30 weeks through 14 chapters. And this morning, we're going to attempt to sort of bring that to a close. What did we learn? What have we seen in this book? An overview of, of Zechariah. You'll also notice an additional handout, this green one. A lot of information on here can be daunting. Feel free to set that aside right now. I was hoping that as we go over these scenes and review what we've learned, you may want to at some future point, maybe over lunch, look over this sheet and and go through it. It might help tie things together. But for the purpose of our study this morning, you can set this aside and we'll be using the insert with the blanks and outline of the major themes in Zechariah. And I've, I've been thoroughly blessed through our study. I hope you have as well. One of the things that I find particularly encouraging is the truth from Scripture that all Scripture is profitable. If you flip over the insert, you'll see that passage from 2 Timothy. And when I first started, I received some questions. Why Zechariah? And Zechariah is a, was, I trust for many of us, an unfamiliar book. Uh, the longest of the minor prophets, written to probably the least well-known portion of Israel's history, the post-exile portion of history. And yet, what the New Testament writers say is true. These things were, in fact, written for our instruction. And these things are profitable. And I I hope and trust that you have profited from our time in it. So, with the time that we have this morning, let's dive into an overview or outline of the major themes in the book of Zechariah. Zechariah's 14 chapters, we've gone over this repeatedly, but here's kind of the final exam I have suggested a, a division of the book. Remember, the first six chapters are eight night visions, then chapters seven through eight are one question and four answers, where the people come and ask a question of God and they get four answers in return, and then chapters nine through 14 are the two burdens of the word of the Lord. And in these major sections, I just want to highlight for our time this morning five major themes in the book, five major themes in the book. Number one, personal repentance and faith is the starting point of all of the Lord's covenant blessings. Personal repentance and faith is the starting point of all of the Lord's covenant blessings. If you look here in chapter 1, what I'm pointing out is, is the first six verses of the book. And when we studied this, I, I remember first um, perking up to and, and paying attention to the fact that there's there's three time stamps in the book. Zechariah is historically rooted. God wants us to know not just that these things happened, but to know with certainty when they happened. And so Zechariah 1.1 opens in the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edu, saying... But if you jump ahead to chapter 1, verse 7, you get another time stamp. And we're only two to three months ahead on the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat in the second year of Darius. The word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edu, saying. And what's really interesting is really starting at 1-7 is where the first major section of the eight night visions begins. And yet the living God wanted us to know that before these words of encouragement came, before his promises and his, his prophecies and predictions of encouragement and kind words came, two months to three months before that came the message of one to six. And it's because personal repentance and faith is the starting point of all of the Lord's covenant blessings. Just read the first six verses as God calls his people to return to him. Verse 2 of chapter 1. The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, 
as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us. What we learn is this. Before our book comes, which is summed up with kind and encouraging words, the book Zechariah means God remembers. Before all those words of kindness, before all those words of comfort comes, God first Two to three months earlier, sends his prophet to call the people to repentance and faith, to return to him. Because only in that condition, only in a right relationship with the Lord, are we in a position to receive God's blessings. And and that's crucial. It's crucial to get. Personal repentance and faith is the starting point of all of the Lord's covenant blessings. It's the starting point. You can't skip over that step. We can't skip over that step to get to better marriages and better children. So we can't skip over that step to get to better relationships and better work performance. It starts with a right relationship with God. The foundation of all that God requires from us is a right heart related towards him. It's why if you turn over towards the end of the book to chapter 12, before the Lord will come out and fight for his people, before the Lord will defend them, before the Lord will fight for them, he has to convert them. Because the beginning point of God's blessings is personal repentance and faith. And we see that in 12, chapter 12, verse 10, at the Battle of Armageddon. We've been there in the previous weeks. As the nations initially succeed in their attack, and then, verse 10, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him, as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him, as one weeps over a firstborn. And on that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be great. And he goes on to describe their, their mourning, their repentance. Before God will fight and defend Israel, God has to bring Israel to a place of repentance and faith. The very first word out of our Lord's mouth recorded in the Gospel of Mark is repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. And so one of the first things we learn is God has promises, God has encouragement, God has blessings, God has has equipping scriptures and truths, but all of those are founded upon us being in a right relationship with him. And there's there's a message here for two sorts of people today. If you don't know the living God, God's desire is to be reconciled with you. Last week, we, we heard from Pastor Daniel about the ministry of reconciliation that we have. We, we sang earlier, my God is reconciled. And I know that to some that may seem like an odd position to be in, but here in Zechariah, we see not only have they turned from God, but God in response to them turning from him has turned from them. And so he tells them, return to me and I will return to you. If you're here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus, you are in a hostile relationship with God. Not just hostile because you are at war with him, but hostile because he is at war with you. We had a wonderful baptism testimony a few weeks ago. Someone speaking of God defeating them. I was encouraged by that. God has defeated my resistance and my sin. God desires to be reconciled, but apart from the blood of Jesus Christ, apart from trusting in him as your savior, apart from turning to him from all other things, you are not reconciled with God. And there are no promises, there are no blessings, there are no promises for a future. Apart from that, there is just the wrath of God. According to John 3, whoever does not believe in the Son, the wrath of God abides on him. And God here in this passage in Zechariah reminds them how angry he was with the former fathers and their parents who did not obey. And then the solution is repentance and believing his word. That's what we see here. My word went out, they ignored my word. Believe what God has said. Believe what God has said. Turn to him, and he will return to you. The the New Testament equivalent of this is is draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Resist the devil, he will flee from you. Now, the other person this word is for is for a Christian who may have drifted. You, You understand that if we walk in darkness, we do not have fellowship with God, and we don't have fellowship with one another. But returning to fellowship with God and returning to fellowship with one another is as simple as, as turning from your sin to the Lord. It's, it's returning to him, and he returns to you. There is no one here too far separated, too far removed, that they cannot be reconciled. God's heart is that he desires to be reconciled. He wants to be at peace with you. And so the first thing we learn is before we can move any further, before we can look at these prophecies, look at these words, the starting point is personal repentance and faith is the starting point of all of the Lord's covenant blessings. And I just want to call on you today, 
be at peace with God. Be reconciled. We're going to celebrate the Lord's table announcing that we are at peace with him. And if you're not at peace with God, either because you don't know him or because you have walked off in the darkness for a time, this morning, take some time and, and be reconciled. Know that God's desire is peace with you. But also know that God disciplines his sons and daughters whom he receives. And God will destroy his enemies. So that's the first point. Personal repentance and faith is the starting point of all of the Lord's covenant blessings. And then we move from that opening message to the eight night visions. In one night, God gave eight visions to Zechariah to announce to the people. And they take place over the next chapters. If you remember them, the first is the vision of the horsemen where Zechariah sees a reconnaissance group coming back from examining the four corners of the earth, and they announce that, that the nations are at ease. And the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ, in verse 12 said, the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these 70 years? And the Lord answered, gracious and comforting words. You see that? The gracious and comforting words follow the people's repentance and faith. The gracious, there's a lot of comfort in this book, but it follows an opening message of return to God. God wants to comfort them. He wants to bless them. He wants to encourage them. And that's, that's what this book takes up. And so what we see here is God's love and, and passion for Israel and Jerusalem. And the other half of this, verse 15, I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. The measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts. My cities shall again overflow with prosperity. And the Lord will again comfort Zion. And again, choose Jerusalem. Now this, this is sort of the heart of the matter for these people. If you remember, only 50,000 Israelites returned from the Babylonian captivity. Once a multi-million nation gobbled up by Nebuchadnezzar, taken away for 70 years off the land. These people now come back as a ragtag group. They remembered the glory of Solomon's temple, the glory of their empire, that the Queen of Sheba would come and marvel at it. And now there's this little foundation they started building for a much smaller, much more rinky-dink temple. And they, and they gave up and they quit building it. And they are discouraged. And their enemies around them taunt them and mock them. This is, this is the underdog people. This is the sidelined people. In many respects, I think this book is encouraging because it's written to people who feel no longer the majority but the minority. No longer in power and control, but much more weak. In, in recent months, it's become clear that those who hold the biblical fidelity are becoming the increasing minority in this country. Take comfort. God has encouraging words for us, encouraging words for all such people in such circumstances. Now, for them, the issue is building, finishing building the temple. That was the big deal for them. That's what the, the prophet Haggai and Zechariah were sent to do, to encourage the people, stay on task, stay focused, be obedient, be faithful, build, finish building the temple. I'm with you. I'm going to protect you. Now, we can have a hard time resonating with that because we we don't have geographic locations for the church. The church is transnational. There's no one particular nation. The church has no geographic center. Wherever we meet, there the church is. But Israel's covenant with God was geographically specific. It was nationally specific, and its worship was location-specific. And so for them, the building of the temple is necessary and a necessary step for them to rightly worship God. Moreover, the building of the temple is essential because Jesus needed the temple to go to and to cleanse. In Haggai, turn, turn back a page to Haggai chapter 2. Just so you understand why this building of this temple is such a big deal. And we'll pick it up in chapter 2, verse 2. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? There were some, maybe in their 80s or 90s, who remembered as children or as young men and women 
what Solomon's temple looked like before Nebuchadnezzar came and destroyed it. And the obvious implication is, even though this temple isn't finished being built, just by the size of its foundation, just by looking at the tools and the resources you're using to make it, this is going to be a shallow comparison. This is going to be small and tiny and faint. And God encourages them, Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, and the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst, which is, which is a recognition that when Solomon dedicated his temple, what happened? God's visible presence, his Shekinah glory, descended and filled the temple. This temple they're building, no Shekinah glory. No visible indication of God's presence. But despite the fact that there was no shining light, there was no visible presence of God, God promises to them, my spirit remains in your midst. So he's going to be with them. He's going to strengthen them. He's going to be in their midst. He tells them, fear not, for the earth and the seas and the dry land, yet once more, sorry, in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations so that the treasure of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. And then get this in verse 9. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Now understand what he has just said. The Lord has just said that this second temple will have a greater glory than the glory of Solomon's temple. Also understand, this second temple has now also been destroyed. Titus, in 70 AD, took it apart stone by stone and dropped it in the sea. This is the temple that Jesus would come to, the temple that Herod would try to rebuild and and make greater. And the only possible conclusion to how can this be so, how can this tiny, smaller temple that didn't have all the gold, didn't have all the opulence, how can it have a greater glory than Solomon's temple that had the Shekinah glory blasting light through it like a thick fog that drove everyone out? The answer is this temple that they are building. One one day, hundreds of years later, a Jewish carpenter would show up and, and fashion a whip out of cords. And he would take possession of his father's house. And he would, in anger, drive out people and demand that God's house be honored. Zeal for his house overtook him. And only to this temple that they're working on will the honor be given that the incarnate Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, would arrive at, would take possession of. And this house needs to be built for those things to happen. And so what they're about is building this temple, being faithful with what God has given them to do. And all the night visions and really all the rest of the book play into encouraging them to do that. Understand that most of the things predicted, the people of Zechariah's day would not live to see. They would not live to see Alexander the Great. That generation would not live to see Alexander the Great come down. They would not live to see the rebellion of Judas Maccabees. They would not live to see the kingdom of God in their lifetime. They would not live to see Babylon crushed in their lifetime. And so we ask, and this is sort of point two, what, what is the purpose of promises like this? These night visions, promises. Um, in, at the end of chapter one, the next one, the, the vision of the horns and the craftsmen, a promise that all the nations that God had appointed to crush them down would in turn themselves be crushed. The promise in chapter two, the vision of the man with the measuring line, that Jerusalem would be rebuilt and overflow with people, but we learn throughout the book this ultimately only happens in the millennial kingdom which hasn't happened yet. The vision of chapter 3 of Joshua the high priest being declared competent and equipped and installed by God, cleansed. The vision of the golden lampstands in Zerubbabel in chapter 4, the promise of cleansing seen in the flying scroll and the woman in the basket of chapter 5, that God would ultimately purify his people. The vision of the chariots in chapter 6 and the promise of the coming priest king at the end of chapter 6. What is the point of all of that? I mean, certainly it's informative. It instructs us. We learn. But I think there's another great point of all of that, and this is point two in the outline. God's promises of present and future grace are meant to empower us to faithfulness and obedience. God's promises of present and future grace are meant to empower us to present faithfulness and obedience. 
Really, at the end of the day, the work that God had given these people to do, their faithfulness and their obedience, would be to faithfully continue building the temple. Faithfully continuing being God's people where they were. Most of what God promised them they would not live to see. So you have to ask, what's the practical purpose of this? Well, God's promises of future grace and present grace are always there to give us hope to persevere on. And this gets very practical for us because God has also given us promises. God has also given us predictions of things that will happen in his word. And for us, they're given to encourage us to be obedient. John Piper has a very helpful book called Faith in Future Grace. And he argues that one of the primary means of motivating Christians to obedience is not fundamentally gratitude, as if we're paying God back. After what God did for you, can't you do this for him? But rather, our confidence in his continued grace. And as we look back at his, what he has done, sending his son, and what he has done in providing for us in the past, we, we are more able to believe that he will be sufficient for us in the future. And so we look at these promises, and we'll start working through some of these categories. How does that work? How do we encourage ourselves? Because I think this is very, very practical in, in how to use Scripture to encourage our faithfulness and obedience. Well, there's one category. Present promises of salvation, point A, give us boldness to resist the accuser. His, his declarations, his promises of present grace of our salvation and forgiveness give us boldness to resist the accuser. And turn to chapter 3 of Zechariah where we read the account of Joshua the high priest, a real historical person. And when we studied this, I, I argued that Joshua really represents at least three, if not four people. He represents himself personally. Joshua, this would-be high priest, was born in Babylon. And the, the question was, is, is he qualified to be high priest? He's born in Babylon. Hasn't he been un, unfixedly tainted by his time in Babylon? He, he also sort of largely, more largely, represents the priesthood. The high priest would represent the entire Levitic priesthood. Perhaps part of the reason why the temple rebuilding project had puttered out was this sort of, well, do we even have priests? So Joshua represents himself, he represents the priesthood, and we learn from, from Exodus, the priesthood represents the people. Is Israel itself too corrupt, too broken, too tainted? Do they have any use to God? And then as we see how the Lord God declares him to be saved, we, we, and we realize that this is how God does and always has saved, and in some respects, he represents all of us. Let's just read the account, the first five verses. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. This is no different than what we see in Revelation 8, where Satan ever lives to accuse the brethren. He was an accuser then, he's an accuser now. And I love this. Here's this court scene. The accuser is present, and before the prosecuting attorney gets to open his mouth, he is prosecuted. I love it. It's dramatic. It's not what you'd expect. The, the prosecuting attorney gets prosecuted. Satan's here. He's ready to accuse. He doesn't say a word. He disappears off the narrative. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Yes, he was in Babylon. Yes, there's some corruption. Did I not pluck him? Did I not choose him? And, and the risen Christ, not the risen Christ, sorry, the pre-incarnate Christ argues, rebukes Satan, not on Joshua's merit, not on his good deeds, but on God's sovereign choice. God has chosen to place his love on this one. How dare you? How dare you attempt to bring an accusation against him? Now you read promises like that, and I think it gives us boldness to resist the accuser in our life. I think promises in the New Testament that we sang, he will hold me fast, that our salvation is finished, right? You read passages like that, and then you look back at your track record, and you see where you failed the Lord, and you see where you failed the Lord, and you see where you failed the Lord. Because, of course, the next dramatic turn in this passage is we learn the defendant is, in fact, guilty. So the first thing of this narrative, the, the accuser gets thrown out of court, and then only do we learn, <laughs> do we learn then, verse 3, now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed in filthy garments. The gospel is not God making people good enough to be deserving of heaven. The gospel is God looking at dirty, filthy sinners and silencing the mouths of the accuser and declaring them righteous 
Because, as we see, Jesus, the angel of the Lord here, is the one who removes his guilt. And Jesus, the angel of the Lord, is the one who provides him with a righteousness. The angel said to those who were standing by, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, and to all of us who are Christians who've come to faith in Jesus, this is what Jesus says to us. Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. I will clothe you with pure vestments. Words like that, I think, give us boldness, and that's the blank. Present salvation gives us boldness to resist the accuser. And so if, if you're feeling discouraged, how can I be of any use to God? My sins are so great. I, I first start with point one. Have you actually come to the Lord in repentance and faith? Have you actually turned to him? But if you have, be of good cheer. We have a Savior who is greater than our sin. The New Testament, we, we read this in Hebrews chapter 4. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near. The throne of grace that may receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need. So that's one of the first ways these types of words can be encouraging. Promises of what God has done. In the New Testament, you'll find them declarations of who we are in Christ, what Christ has done for us, what God has, has promised in, in forgiveness, that if we will confess our sins, he will forgive us, give us boldness to resist the accuser. Point B, and I've got to pick up speed here. Present, present equipping gives us strength to do the work of ministry. Two whole chapters, two of these night visions are dedicated exclusively to making it clear that Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel are in fact installed, chosen by God for the appointed task. Not only did God give Israel the task and the work to do, but he gave them equipped leadership to do it. The New Testament likewise tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, that to each of us has been given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And a little bit later in 1218, but as it is God arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. In Ephesians 4, 11 to 12, we've looked at this recently in our series on church membership. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So likewise, we have promises where God has promised that he has equipped us. And when we look to those types of passages, we can be encouraged that we are competent for the work of the ministry. He has given us his spirit. He's given us his word. He's given us his people. And so the work that he has given us to do, he has given us the equipping to do. God's promises of present and future grace are meant to empower our present faithfulness and obedience. Present equipping gives us strength to do the work of the ministry. You might be tempted to think, I'm useless. I'm no good. God can't do anything with me. I don't fit in. I got enough. That's not true. That's a lie. A lie our heart tells us. It's a lie the accuser tells us. God's word says if you're in Christ, you are necessary for the body. You have been equipped for ministry. We can have confidence that the work he's called us to do, he's given us the equipping to do. C, future blessing, promises of future blessing give us hope to persevere through present sorrows. Now Israel had gone through a lot of sorrows, a lot of suffering, a lot of pain. And one of the things we learn is that when God promises these future rewards, how good things will be, it's there to, to give us hope to persevere. Hope to persevere through present sorrows. The Apostle Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18. We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. For the things that are unseen are eternal. And we talked about this. The purpose of eschatology, according to Scripture, is that we might purify ourselves now. God gives us a confidence and a certainty of what is coming and our unshakable reward that is awaiting us where neither moth or rust destroys so that we can live reckless lives of faith in obedience to Christ because there's nothing they can take from us that ultimately we don't get back a thousandfold. There's nothing they can do ultimately to hurt us. There's nothing we can go through that can separate us from Christ that can lessen our reward 
And so we can live lives that are radically different from the rest of the world because our treasure is ahead of us. Our hope is ahead of us. Our hope isn't in this world here and now. Our hope, according to Paul, is in a world to come. And so even though none of the Israelites that Zechariah spoke to would live to see the kingdom described in the later chapters, knowing that it is coming, knowing that their work isn't in vain, knowing how the story ends is meant to equip you and I and them to currently and presently be faithful. So what that means practically is if you find yourself lagging in zeal, if you find yourself lagging under the sufferings of this world, the discouragements of this world, go to these passages to give yourself hope so that you can obey and persevere today. Eschatology isn't fundamentally given to us so we can make charts and get in theological arguments. It's meant to empower holy, faithful living today. Point D, promises of future judgment give us confidence to endure present injustices. That's really the summary of most of these words are, I'm going to smash your enemies and I'm going to lift you up. And so what's the point of the promises of God smashing his enemies? Well, turn to 1 Peter. I think the point of knowing that God will right injustice, that God will punish iniquity, that God will deal with those who appear to be getting away with it now, is that we can endure present injustice. I've been seeing uh, videos and accounts of some things that are going on um, in, in some of the health providers in our country and if the reports that I'm seeing are in any way true, terrible, terrible atrocities are being done. I'm guessing most of you know what I'm talking about. And, and you hear some of the reports, and your heart breaks, but more than your heart breaking, you just, Lord, stop it. Lord, do something. Help the helpless. Stand up for the cause of the widow and the orphan. Lord, why does your hand tarry? And then you go to passages like 1 Peter 2. And you remember that God will right all wrongs. Justice will be satisfied. I mean, look to Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. For to this, and if you if we picked it up earlier, it's suffering. To this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. So what we're about to see is what Christ did when he suffered injustice, and we're supposed to follow that example. He left us an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. This is an argument, classic Jewish form of argument, from the greater to the lesser. The point being, none of us can make those claims. He is more righteous than us. And if the one who's more righteous could endure suffering, how much more should those who are unrighteous endure suffering? That's the logic here. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But what did he do? But continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. As terrible and as awful and as heart-wrenchingly evil as the sin of abortion and the trafficking of... Oh, I don't even want to... As terrible as that is, The greatest injustice of all time was when the sinless Son of God was condemned by sinful man, nailed to a cross, falsely accused, and died. And Jesus endured that by waiting on his Father's timetable. He did not endure that by saying, it doesn't matter, it's okay. He didn't endure that by saying, it's okay, the future will make up for this. It is right for us to feel the weight of injustice. It is right for us to feel a certain amount of outrage and grief is wrong for us to express that anger towards those people. What is right is to do what Jesus did, not to respond evil with evil, not to return a curse for a curse, but to continue trusting God. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus cries out, Father, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. And Jesus is able to put up with the insults and the grief and the false accusation and the injustice of it, knowing there's coming a day when his Father will judge. And Jesus is willing to say, I will await your judgment, my Father. And if Jesus can endure that, and if Jesus can wait his Father's timetable, then we need to follow in step. And we can take comfort by seeing those passages of judgment that as evil as things are going on in the world today, they will be made right 
The scales will be balanced. There will be a reckoning. It will come to an end. And so we persevere in confidence in present injustice, knowing that justice will one day reign. There will be a righteous king who rules the nations with a rod of iron. And so we endure present injustice. That's just some of a smattering of how God's promises and declarations are used to empower our faith, to give us boldness, to give us strength, to give us confidence. Okay, chapter 7 of Zechariah. Back to, back to Zechariah. In that second section, the people come with a question. Hey, should we keep on fasting? Should we keep on this fast that we made up? And, and making things up isn't bad. We've, we've, as Christians, made up our share of religious observances. We made up Christmas. We made up a bunch of other things. No, those are good. They're not, they're not commanded in Scripture, but we, we, we came up with them to celebrate. That's great. And if it sits upon a heart of faith and faithfulness, it's great. But they invented a fast, and they come to God, and they say, hey, should we continue this fast? And the implication is, hey, have we done this enough yet? And, and I use the example of kids, right? And you tell your kid to go clean the room, and they don't clean the room. And so, you know, you give them a timeout or whatever you do for discipline, you, you deal with it. And then they come back, and they come in, and they say, I wrote a poem for you. Made a card for you. Well, what you really want to know, as cute as that is, what you really want to know is, have, have you cleaned your room yet? <laughs> and, and if they haven't cleaned their room yet... Maybe, maybe you're like me, you still get weak, and you sort of got to, okay, Serena, you got to deal with her because she's being way too cute right now. Um, <laughs> I have a hard time resisting one of my children. My wife has a harder time with the other, and so we, 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 you know, we, we tag team sometimes. Okay, you got to deal with this. This is way too cute. <laughs> got to keep a straight face. Got to keep a straight face. Okay. Um, but here, point three, true worship comes from faithful and obedient hearts. True worship comes from faithful and obedient hearts. And you look in chapter 7, and what God's rebuke to them is this. He is not impressed with worship that isn't sincere. We, we, we benefit, we get no cred with God when we go through religious rites and motions when it's not built upon, and this gets back to point one, a heart of repentance and faith. They come... Look at chapter 7, verse 3, saying to the priest of the house of the Lord of hosts, should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I've done for so many years? And the word of hosts came to me. Say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fast and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh and for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? Just to say, are you really concerned about offending me or are you concerned about the consequence? You, you fasted because you were really sad to be in Babylon. It's easy to be sorry for the consequences of our sin. It's harder to be sorry for the offense it does to God. And he goes on through this, and, and he rebukes them for a time, and then he ultimately encourages them. But the point for us is this. It's easy to get caught up in religious ritual. In a sense, gathering on Sunday morning is a ritual. We, we do it. It's our pattern. It's our habit. It's our tradition. And the length of time and the standing and the sitting and the singing. All, there's, there's a sense of, of liturgy to this, a sense of, of, of form that can become meaningless. And you've seen churches where it's become meaningless. People recite the creeds and they stand and they sit and, they, and, and it's not, their brains aren't engaging. And we learn from Zechariah that what God is always after is our hearts. Now, it doesn't make the religious worship unimportant. It just makes it secondary. Just as David in Psalm 51 says... <laughs> You don't want sacrifices or I'd offer them. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Then two verses later, he's promising he will offer right sacrifices to God. It's not that the entire book of Leviticus was optional for David. But what David gets is if I don't first come to God with a broken spirit and a contrite heart, if I don't start, again, point one, with repentance and faith, there is no amount of sacrifices. There's no amount of church attendance. There's no amount of Awana helping. There's no amount of VBS involvement. There's no amount of singing of songs that in any way impresses God. And so we're challenged about the sincerity of our hearts. We can't skip over that step to do things. We need to be right with the Lord. We need our hearts right with the Lord. Which brings us to point four. The, the second the third section of the book, The Two Burdens of the Word of the Lord. And I will be brief here, mainly because this is where we have most recently been. In chapter 9, verse 1 begins, The Burden of the Word of the Lord. 
Chapter 12, verse 1 begins, the burden of the word of the Lord, two burdens of the word of the Lord, almost entirely forward-looking. And here we get the most messianic-centered section of the book. And major themes that come out of this, number point number four, the Messiah will come, he will be rejected. The Messiah will come, he will be rejected. We turn to chapter 9. What we learn as the shepherding pastoral emphasis of the book starts picking up in chapter 9, look at 9, verse 16. Speaking of what will happen after the king comes riding on a donkey. On that day, the Lord will save them as the flock of his people, like the crown, like the jewels of his crown. They shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness and how great is beauty. We see God's heart for his, his people like a flock. Chapter 10, verse 2, um, the, the second half. Therefore the people wander like sheep afflicted without a shepherd. Verse 3, my anger is hot against the shepherds, and I'll punish the leaders, for the Lord of hosts cares for his flock. And again, that's a good word. God cares for his flock. His heart is for his flock. But when he sends his shepherd in chapter 11 to the flock, he comes and he cares for the flock. Pick it up in... Uh, Verse 7 of chapter 11. So I became the shepherd of the flock, doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders, and I took two staffs, and one I named Favor, and the other I named Union, and I tended the sheep. In one month, I destroyed the street, three shepherds. The good shepherd comes, Messiah will come. He has a heart like God's heart, caring for the flock, passionate for the flock. He tends to them, and he feeds them, and he defends them from their enemies. But they became impatient with me. I became impatient with them, and they also detested me. This good shepherd who comes, who tends the flock, who fights their enemies, is detested by his flock. So I said, I will not be your shepherd. What is to die? Let it die. What is to be destroyed? Let it be destroyed. Let those who are left devour the flesh of one another. And I took my staff favor, and I broke it, annulling the covenant that I had made with all the peoples. So it was annulled on that day. And I said to them, it seems good to you. Give me my wages, but if not, keep them. They weighed out my wages, 30 pieces of silver. They, they weighed out, what's, what's the Messiah's worth? Messiah comes and he serves and he tends his people and when it's time for them to estimate his worth, you're worth about as much to us as any slave we could buy in any market. He is rejected. He tends the flock he loves and he is rejected by the flock. We learn in chapter 12, verse 10, he is pierced. They will look, and I'll pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they will mourn for him. We have rejected Messiah. We have a pierced Messiah. Chapter 13, verse 7. We have a Messiah stricken by God. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts, strike the shepherd. Is God speaking to the sword of his justice? So we see in the, the last section of Zechariah, a Messiah, a shepherd who comes, who cares for the flock, who tends to the flock, and is despised by the flock, pierced by the flock, and struck down by the sword of God's justice. Now, there's a lot more clarity we get this side of the cross, a lot more clarity we get in the New Testament, but that's exactly what happened. Point five. That's not the end of the story. The Messiah will come and he will rule. He'll have a kingdom. He's the king. The Messiah will come and he will rule. And we've just seen this so quickly. We, we've seen how in Israel's most dire moment, when they're surrounded, when the walls are breached, when the enemies are dividing the spoil in their midst, then they look on him whom they've pierced. Then they cry out to him. And then chapter 14, verse 3. Then... The Lord will go out and fight against those nations. As on a, when he fights on a day of battle, on that, feet, on that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem. And the Messiah returns, and he utterly and totally defeats his enemy. He speaks a curse where while they are standing, their bodies rot. Total and absolute defeat of his enemies. And he will rule the earth in righteousness. 14, verse Eight, on that day, living waters will flow from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. 
It shall continue in summer and in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. And that day, the Lord will be one. His name, one. He will rule the earth in righteousness, and he'll be worshipped by all the peoples, tribes, and nations. And the book ends with 16, 14, 16. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that come up against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and keep the Feast of Booths. And we talked about the Feast of Booths, how Israel would go out and they'd set up these little huts and tents and they'd, they'd camp out for a week to remember their exile. So a way to remember this, the Feast of Booths is always intense. There you go, Zach. Feast of Booths is intense. And the, the book ends with the worship of the living God. That's what we learn from this book. Messiah will come and be rejected, and Messiah will come and he will rule. Now quickly, we're going to transition now to a time of communion. I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward. But I just want to, while they do that, encourage you to get right with God. He desires to be reconciled with you. He does. His heart is, is to be at peace with you. But as it says in the beginning of Zechariah, return to him and he will return to you. Return to him. He will return to you. Turn, turn your heart towards him. Turn from your sin and your wickedness. Turn to Christ. And he will turn towards you. This meal that we're about to eat is a, is a meal, a covenant remembrance, the Lord's death. And it's for all of those who have been united by faith to the Messiah. Let's pray and we'll transition into our time. Lord God, you have been so good to us. And your word has equipped us with many promises, many wonderful truths with which to encourage our faith. And you, you, have, you have invited us to be reconciled with you. You've, you've called upon us to turn to you. You've pleaded through your emissaries that we might be reconciled with you. And we, we have heard that call and we have turned. And we put our faith in your son. The Messiah who came and was rejected. The Messiah who came and was pierced and stricken and smitten on our behalf and the Messiah who one day will come to rule the world in righteousness. And so, Lord, we approach this table trembling but with great joy, knowing that as we take of this table, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. In Jesus' name, amen. The Apostle Paul in, in 1 Corinthians 11 writes about this, this symbol, symbolic meal which we partake of. The, the, the bread and the juice and the cups do nothing. It's Christ's body and Christ's blood that does everything. But these, these pictures of those realities declare to each other, to the world, angels who are watching, the reality that we are those who have come to Christ. We are those who have eaten of him and have partaken of him. We are those who, who are sustained and fed by him. Apostle Paul writes this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body. And in the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. And as the men pass out the cups, I just want to encourage you to examine your heart and get right with the Lord.
this is your first time, your first time in a long time, you have two cups. One contains the bread, one contains the, the grape juice. We'll be taking them in the order that the Lord took of these. But first, just as our Lord gave thanks, let us give thanks. Lord, we, we thank you and rejoice at the sacrifice that was given 2,000 years ago on our behalf. The debt that we could not pay, the weight of our sins was taken freely upon the sinless Lamb of God, willingly, standing in our place, receiving our punishment, paying our debt, receiving your wrath for our sins. For our sake, he became sin who knew no sin, that in him we might in turn become the righteousness of God in Christ. So Lord God, we, we thank you for that sacrifice, that sufficient sacrifice, and we rejoice to celebrate it. And we also rejoice to look forward to his return. Jesus' name, amen. Apostle Paul writes that Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. We will now take bread. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Please pass your cups to the sender, to the ushers. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. You are dismissed.